The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to a special episode of CPR Unplugged. Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you got going on today, thank you for joining us. I'm joined today by two guests. I am very lucky to have the opportunity to talk to them about different experiences and perspectives on the same topic. So the topic we're discussing today, without further ado, is uh, mental health in the prison system, or specifically for individuals who are incarcerated. So today I'm joined by Marianne Matthews, and she is an employee with CPR, but also currently in school obtaining her master's. I will let her take the mic now and kind of explain more about herself. Marianne, welcome. Hi, thank you, Jess. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here. It's really cool to have the opportunity to talk with you guys. It's just kind of a perfect crossroads because in my master's program right now, I am studying mental health in the criminal justice system, um, you know, focusing on the mass incarceration epidemic that we are facing in our nation today and how that is specifically impacting people with mental health issues, and also people who are finding themselves developing mental health issues as a result of their incarceration experience. So excited to kind of unpack this with you guys. I know you guys are the experts. So just cool to to find an opportunity to, to meet with you guys on this topic. So I am definitely not an expert in this specific niche, which is why we are also joined by Michael. Uh, Michael has over 20 years of experience providing mental health evaluations in the prison system. So Michael, tell us a little bit about your background. Hi, Jess. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I, for years, I went into both jails, mostly jails, but also prisons to do SMI evaluations. An SMI evaluation is an evaluation to determine if individuals were, uh, would qualify for the uh, seriously mentally ill program in uh, Arizona. So we would go in, assess the individual, and then if the state determined that they made, uh, met criteria, they would be enrolled in the program for people with serious mental illnesses. Okay, so kind of to move back to Marianne, can you provide us with some background, some stats to give us an idea of how prevalent is mental health um, for individuals who are incarcerated? What does that look like? Yeah. So first of all, just the incarceration stats, I feel like are kind of staggering. Um, in the United States, we have over 2 million people who are behind bars in some sort of a capacity. Um, and of those 2 million people, approximately a quarter of them, somewhere between 25 and 35% of those incarcerated individuals have a diagnosed mental illness. And then about half of those people who are incarcerated with a mental illness are receiving no treatment. So that's, you know, that's a big issue. We, we see firsthand what the impact, the benefits of good mental health treatment are, and then conversely, how the, the lack of that treatment can really impact people's functioning. So when it comes to incarceration, something like a lack of treatment while you are undergoing that experience can really set you back significantly. We're looking at really high recidivism rates, which is the rate of people being released from prison or jail and then finding themselves right back in the same situation and rearrested within a short period of time. Usually within a few years, people wind up right back where they 
where they started back behind bars. So we're looking at somewhere between 50 and 100% in some cases, um, recidivism rates where people are turning around and going right back into the prison. So, um, you know, given that these folks have needs that are not being met, it, it seems like there's a critical area here for mental health treatment to be prioritized in order to kind of resolve that, that re- revolving door issue that we have with our incarceration stats. So expanding on that revolving door, Michael, what are some of the mental health conditions or symptoms that might contribute to that if, go- if left untreated? I, I think when you, when you speak about mental health and, and prisons and jails, uh, you have to separate two things. So there are individuals going into these prisons and jails that are already mentally ill. That is, and we know because of what happened in the 60s and 70s with the, uh, the drive to deinstitutionalize people and get them out of the hospitals. So what happened is that all of that population shifted <laughs> from uh, those places to uh, becoming homeless. And in many instances, they end up in the jails and prisons. So that's the reason why all of these individuals, the 25 to 30% that Marianne was mentioning, end up in the prisons and jails nowadays. So that is one piece. And then the second piece you have to consider is that what are the effects of incarceration to mental health? And when you look at diagnoses, there are some diagnoses that for sure don't get created, meaning uh, if you have schizophrenia, you will have schizophrenia in jail and prison as well. But if you don't have schizophrenia, you're not going to develop schizophrenia just because you go to jail. (laughs) But that's not the case for things like depression, anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder, which can develop at any time, and in those uh, circumstances, uh, develop more frequently. I, I can specifically remember a, a case, uh, someone I saw in a jail that had been uh, brutally raped. Uh, and this was a male of Hispanic origin who was so distressed by that experience that was almost catatonic, very, had very difficult time coping and, and developed PTSD as a result. That is someone that at that point needed very clearly uh, mental health treatment that wasn't being provided. (laughs) So that's one example of how being in jail can develop a mental health issue. And then you have this whole other population of people that were untreated in the community, probably homeless, and ended up in the um, jail system and are still not receiving treatment or have very limited (laughs) treatment available to them. Uh, I also uh, used to go to the psych units in the jails, which were a terrible place. Um, they kept individuals in isolation, and you would see mostly those uh, floridly psychotic individuals that uh, <laughs> were refusing meds and were uh, put in isolation, and their conditions would get a lot worse because of the conditions. Uh, so, so you have a little bit of both uh, in there. So it kind of becomes this downward spiral where they they might have a condition that's not being treated, but then the jail and prison itself is exacerbating that condition. So then the symptoms continue to worsen. Yeah. And something I saw as far as the worsening symptoms and a lot of my research, I saw the, the symptoms worsening as then becomes much more of an issue because it results in things like agitation, um, 
paranoia, things that make it difficult for them to interact with their fellow inmates, with guards. It, it can lead to altercations, which then escalate the um, the severity of their treatment and puts them in, like you were saying, um, isolation, which then makes things get even worse much more rapidly. So it's, yeah, it's really bad on all sides. It seems like there's the disruption in treatment for folks who require medications. Um, you know, if you're, if you're bounced around from facility, from facility to facility, or you have um, interrupted treatment as far as changes in the staff, changes in the medical team, your consistent delivery of your medications is often interrupted. So yeah, folks who, who require a regular medication dose are often not receiving it. And then as you were saying, Michael, just the experience is often traumatic and developing um, mental health issues for folks. I saw one of the stats I saw was studies show that individuals with an incarceration history have a significantly greater likelihood of major depression life dissatisfaction and mood disorders, and that these differences are substantial. So when we consider that these folks, the majority of them will ultimately be released, they will be coming back into our communities. Um, it's really, it's a, it's a priority, I feel like on a community level that we think of these people as our neighbors, you know, they will be coming back and they will be returning to the community from which they came. And we really need to prioritize helping to ensure that they come back better and not worse. Now, this is definitely a systemic issue. And Marianne, did you find any information about once they are released, is there support in the community? What does that process look like currently? It really, it, it varies. Um, the majority of what I found was that it is going to be quite a struggle when you come back out. Um so if you do not have a mental health issue, coming out of an incarceration experience is a huge challenge. So you have, you're faced with things like finding employment, which often involves disclosing your, your history, your legal history, which makes it much harder to find employment. Things like finding housing. Again, you have to disclose your legal history and it makes it harder to find a, a safe place to live. Um, in a lot of cases, people lose access to um, government programs that are designed to assist the, the very poor, things like um, food boxes, you know, rent assistance, things that are, are there to help um, support people when they are in need. But when you have been incarcerated, particularly if you have a felony, you lose access to those supports. So then if you add a mental illness on top of those really big challenges, it can become insurmountable for a lot of people. So as far as what's available for folks, I actually didn't find a lot. That's something that I, I would like to learn more about. I know that there is some discharge planning that happens when people are leaving um, the prisons, but I don't know exactly what kind of support waits for them once they're out. There has been a positive trend, I think, in this area that uh, with discharge planning. Uh, and this is a bright spot in an otherwise very <laughs> dark situation in the prisons. But uh, we have seen an improvement of people being able to get back on Medicaid prior to their discharge. And the prisons, or I don't know if it's the prisons or access that have uh, coordinated this, but people, particularly coming out of prisons, will um, they are working uh, with the state to get that access reinstated. 
uh, accesses the state Medicaid, which uh, allows individuals to get behavioral and medical treatment upon release. Another trend that's positive is that the prisons or continue to call us to do those SMI evaluations on people that are already qualified. So um, by doing that, we uh, ensure that they get connected back to their SMI clinics upon uh, discharge. So that will at least facilitate that these individuals get connected. It doesn't mean they will follow up and actually get services, but they will have an easier time doing so if they so choose. That's great to hear. So, and Marianne mentioned that there's a lot of other factors contributing to recidivism and sort of, again, those factors can be much more difficult, much bigger hurdles if you have a mental health condition and you're trying to sort through all of that. Michael, what were some of the things that you saw? We would refer to these in the, in the SMI evaluation world, potentially as social determinants of health, things outside of medical and mental health conditions that contribute to our general wellness. So if you think about just the effects of incarceration and long-term incarceration, particularly when people get released, they, they have to start from scratch. And they, like Marianne was saying, you're not allowed to live in many places just because of the fact that you're a felon or that you have, uh, depending on your crimes, but most, I think if you've been in prison, you're not able to rent at many uh, apartment complexes. So housing is difficult. In order to maintain housing, you need stable income. Finding a job when you have a felony is not easy as well. So that reintegration is it's a minefield. Yeah, there, there are so many things that can go wrong. And in addition to that, you might have a parole officer who is uh, putting stress on you to comply to all of these different terms. They're financial. You have to pay. I think there's there are payments due uh, when you have a parole officer. You have to pay uh, a certain amount every month. So you have to pretty quickly find yourself in, in a space where you are making money to meet all of these obligations that for the past 5, 10, 20 years you didn't have because you were incarcerated, incarcerated and everything was provided for you. So it's, it's a very difficult adjustment. Marianne, did you see anything in your research about um, institutionalization, learned helplessness, those types of things? Um, we did touch on that a little bit, but mostly um, in regards to what you're talking about with the parole and probation, what what I saw a lot of was how, how that kind of sets a trap for folks um, and they wind up with minor infractions that then send them back. So when you have, when, when you are on parole, you have to be really, really good and not let anything slip. Otherwise, you find yourself in violation of that parole and then you are rearrested. So I think that is a, a major issue with folks who are released and then part of the parole or probation um, system is that they have they find themselves rearrested as a result of how strict those those guidelines are when you're in that system. And Michael had briefly touched on the the changes he had seen over time, some of the positive things that have started to shift. Marianne, what else have you seen that has already been implemented? What things are kind of headed in the right direction? Yeah, there's definitely um, some movement in the right direction, which is uh, which is great to see. Um, 
one of the things that I thought was pretty cool that I'm seeing is there's a movement of, there's an expanding volunteer movement throughout the country right now where, where people are bringing things like mindfulness, meditation, and yoga into the prisons, which is phenomenal. The, the benefits of those sorts of um, treatments are fantastic for mental health. So seeing that come in for people with um, mental health diagnoses already, as well as people who are just enduring the stress and strain of being incarcerated, things like um, meditation, mindfulness, and yoga are, are really helpful. So it's not in enough jails and prisons yet, but the fact that it's coming is positive. Um, and that there's a volunteer movement bringing it, I think is pretty cool because it's it's folks who are compassionate and see the value in this treatment and are willing to come in and bring it to those who need it the most. Um, so I hope to see more of that sort of thing coming towards um, more of our prisons across the country. Another thing that I saw was pretty cool. Um, there's a particular psychologist at a prison in Texas who's developed a program where he's focusing really um, heavily on behavioral therapy. So he's coined a term called criminalness and his, um, his program is called Changing Lives and Changing Outcomes, and he focuses on the combination of mental health treatment and the behaviors that are specifically tied to a likeliness to, um, to be incarcerated. So he works on helping people develop practical life skills, how to challenge antisocial thought patterns, working on positive connections with others, um, and they're seeing some good success with that. And then another one that I thought was pretty cool, which actually touches on um, crisis preparation and recovery is the adoption of crisis intervention teams, which is happening across the country as well, but not as widespread as we need it to be in order for it to be as effective as possible. Um, and this is the, the practice of involving mental health professionals and including them in the team with um, first responders so that police officers are, are more compassionately trained to deal with mental health issues. And they also have mental health professionals actually there with them um, as a part of their team. So that, that is actually um, bringing some great results in the community, helping to divert people from the prisons and jails in the first place and get them to the more appropriate facilities to treat the underlying mental health issues. So one stat I saw on that was that there are Currently, there's approximately 2,800 of these programs across the country, which is great. It's a good number, but that's actually only 15% of the police jurisdictions around the country. So we've got a lot of improvement um, to make there. So that one I thought was neat because as a CPR employee, I see that we are doing that and we see the, the benefit of having a community crisis team. We've got clinicians out there on the streets, you know, helping to divert these folks and get them to more appropriate care. And I'm, I'm glad to see that we have kind of shifted in that direction. That was one of my roles with CPR as well. I was a crisis interventionist with one of those mobile teams. And, you know, Michael had mentioned in the past, we had this history of um, shifting out of more medical and mental health based treatment and into the incarceration. And I'm seeing that slowly, but surely we're, we're making a dent in that and we're kind of turning it back around. Uh, I definitely have worked with individuals in the community who really what they needed in that moment 
um, like you mentioned before, Marianne, the aggression and the agitation and things like that were coming from some underlying condition Mm -hmm. and they just didn't have the resources or the support that they needed to address that condition. So we've seen some really, um, really positive and uplifting, hopeful experiences in the field where we've been able to get those people connected to those resources um, and training the officers, allowing them to also provide more compassionate care in the communities. It's made a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important that we see this coming up again and again. I mean, we just had, I think it was last week or the week before there was an, an incident that was you know, ended very tragically um, in Philadelphia where someone was having a mental health emergency and it wasn't handled um, properly as far as having someone with the appropriate mental health training to assess and get that individual to the correct sort of treatment. So it's it's really important out there in, on the streets in our communities and in the first place, diverting people and getting them where they need to be. And then for those folks that actually are in our prisons and jails already, we, we really need to focus on that compassionate treatment to help them improve and not come out worse than they, than they were when they went in. So where do we go from here? Yeah, that's, that's the big question. So I'm, I'm hopeful, as you said, we are seeing some trends moving in the right direction. Um, To me, I feel like a a big piece of this is really awareness. So I'm hopeful that having this conversation with you guys and just talking it out and helping others kind of think about this topic and maybe explore the the issue a little bit is helpful. The more the more people are aware of what's going on, then the more the more people can get interested. Like myself, for example, I really was unaware of this issue until I started studying it in this class. And I am I feel in some ways enlightened and called to action that there is a need and there's got to be a way to meet this need to help to help these people to get better. I really think it comes down to changing our mindset a little bit as a nation and that we need to move back in the direction of seeing incarceration as an opportunity to to reform um, rather than only a, a an opportunity for punishment. So yes, a punishment needs to occur, but it can be done more compassionately and in a way that doesn't um, just perpetuate the problem as we're seeing. And I think there's a um, tendency to vilify people when they are incarcerated or charged with some type of a crime. Marianne, are there any resources, if someone is listening to this and they have a loved one who's incarcerated or um, they just want to know more information, are there some places they can go for some additional support or um, knowledge about this? The prison policy website is a good place. Prisonpolicy.org has some really good information. Their American Psychological Association has some good resources as well about improving the mental health um, of inmates, Prison Policy Initiative, um, National Commission on Correctional Health Care, and uh, Healthy People 2020. That one was interesting. Healthy People 2020, um, Social Determinants of Health and Incarceration. There was some research done there that was pretty interesting. And then the National um, Association of Mental Illness, NAMI, has some good information as well on policies that that we can look at for diverting folks out of the criminal justice system and into the mental health system. 
Okay, so definitely today we've just kind of opened the door. We've, we've touched the tip of the iceberg here. Um, hopefully this conversation will continue in our communities and we'll continue to see growth in a positive direction. Absolutely. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Uh, this was a, a really awesome change of pace and I'm glad we got to have this conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Um, really valuable talking with you and I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.